0: And I was interested in how human beings use natural, their natural resources around them, specifically plants. Um, and so I worked in northern Guatemala with a group called the Kekchi Maya um, in the lowland tropical forests of, of the Paten and the Alta Verapaz in Guatemala, and was interested in how they made a living through plant-based technologies. Yeah.
1: Welcome, everyone, to this week's episode of The Sea Has Many Voices. I'm Dr. Greg Stone, and I'm here at College of the Atlantic, a very special place for me in Bar Harbor, Maine, with the president of College of the Atlantic, which, having been a student here, has gotten a special status in my mind, like you're like, you know, the guy that was up on the pedestal in those days, Darren, Dr. Darren Collins. And um, we're looking out over Frenchman's Bay, and uh, it's... uh, Right the be- it's right at the beginning of, uh, what do you call it? Commencement? Comm- commencement. Is commencement, I would yeah. get that confused. Yeah. Commencement and...
0: No, it? it's convocation. convocation. Convocation, that's the word I was thinking of. Yeah. Convocation,
1: <laughs> yeah. Convocation. Which is a
0: gathering of eagles. That's the yeah. plural form of eagles, is a convocation of eagles. Is that where it comes from? Yeah, you know, like a murder of crows, it's a convocation of
1: eagles. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah. that's really cool. I didn't yeah. know that. And I learned this morning from Katona that college comes from the Greek to gather.
0: Yeah, that collect, yeah, yeah that, make, that makes sense. Never out, yeah. but,
1: but anyway, we're, we're, we'll have fun with words in a bit here. So uh, Darren, tell me about yourself. Uh, I My listeners are interested in your, I want to hear your journey. I'm interested too, I actually don't know it all that well, although I've enjoyed working with you a lot recently. We'll get to that later. But. Great,
0: yeah, so thanks for having me, Greg. Yeah. And um, I was born in New Jersey and like ultimate suburban New Jersey, like the hotbed of marine science um, on the (laughs) East Coast. But actually, uh, yeah, not near the Jersey Shore. You know, it was a commuter place for for New York and it was very stereotypical suburban. But um, my mother, like, had this huge influence on me in terms of a love and passion for the outdoors and would Hmm. help me seek out any little corner of woods that may have been left over from development. Did she
1: create the interest or did she stimulate
0: it? I think she was a a model, like she had it herself. Hmm. And I had it in me genetically, but also learned it through her. And so even though I was, you know, grew up in this uh, concrete suburbanized environment, like early on, my love was for the, the outdoors and um, you know I'm the first one in my family to go off to have gone off to college. and so at 18, when the time was right to go search for a college, um, I didn't really have much guidance as to what that would look like, although I knew I loved the outdoors and I was passionate for the environment. And those are really the two things that I reminds has. me of E.O.
1: Wilson comes yeah? to mind, because he grew up in New York City. Yeah. I don't know if you knew that. But and I didn't know that, no. And he he got his love of nature from the park and the Natural History Museum. Yeah. And then, of course, he went on to become one of the world's great um, evolutionary biologists. So you came from an urban environment, and you searched the nature out, and, and that led you to College of the Atlantic, right?
0: It did. I mean, I would say I was even worse off than E.O. Wilson. I didn't have a museum <laughs> to go to or... Um, but but my dad had this friend that went to Bowdoin, yep. right? Which is Bowden's right down the right down the coast and Brunswick. And right. so in his mind, Maine and environment went hand in hand. So we went on this father-son trip up to Bowdoin College and he got out of the car and saw Bowdoin and said, This is it, right? This is this must be a perfect collegiate environment with the greens and the columns and the ivy growing up the walls. And I said, you know, Dad, I'd read about this other place called College of the Atlantic up a little bit further up the coast, can we go check it out? And he said, sure, so we got in the car, pulled into the front entrance here and I got out of the door and I stood face to face with this massive, Back whale skull that you know. I knew that whale. Well. Right? You knew the whale. Well. And I turned to my dad and I said, This is where I want to go to college. And he said, What the hell is this place? You know, like he, he, it didn't line up with what college meant. We're a very different institution. And this was back in 1987, and that's what brought me to College of the Atlantic. He learned to love it. I had for the most extraordinary years, like you, like yeah, you did, well, and I, I have both. to say, I'm an alum. When I got the um, what they call the, you know, the the curriculum program guide, and I was reading, you know, reading through it, and I came across this guy that had spent <laughs> loads of time underwater doing exploration, and his name was Greg Stone in 1982, and I said. That's the guy I want to be. I want to do that. I'm humbled. That. And I swear to God, it's, the, it's, very, that, it's very it's true. And that, uh, you know, I said, if I can do that here, that's where I want to go. And, you know, we've had different paths. My, I'm not an expert on oceans. I spent then time doing a PhD in cultural anthropology, and I was in the tropical forests of Guatemala and the Amazon basin. Um,
1: what, what, what is the, cultural anthropology?
0: A cultural anthropology is the study of existing human cultures, you know, here in the United States, um, compared to Europe, we look at linguistics, archaeology, cultural anthropology, and physical anthropology as, as the kind of four cornerstones of what it means to understand humanity. And I specialized in working with existing human cultures, so I wasn't interested in Past human cultures, or our biological evolution as Homo sapiens. What, what's an example
1: so, of a piece of cultural anthropology? I mean, just exactly oh, Margaret
0: sure. Mead. She's the you know that's the um, the archetypical cultural anthropologist. Cultural anthropologist. So it's yeah. like
1: the study of people's habits and yeah. their
0: belief systems yep. Yep. and yep. their and their like, material culture. And I was interested in how human beings use natural their natural resources around them, specifically plants. Um and so I worked in northern Guatemala with a group called the Kekchi Maya um, in the lowland tropical forests of of the Paten and the Alta Verapaz in Guatemala, and was interested in how they made a living through plant-based technologies. Yeah.
1: I, I, I'm really interested in, you know, every, I've, heard, I've heard it said that everybody's like an armchair anthropologist, because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> anthropology is the study of humans, and yeah. everybody's interested in humans, because we are humans, Yeah. and but so I am kind of want to push in on this a little bit. So a cultural anthropologist studies, is it only living cultures?
0: Yeah, yeah, traditionally, yeah. So like it's if I were an archaeologist, I would be interested in human culture, but as expressed in past human I cultures, see. by their material remains. When you spend time out in Polynesia working with people on how they navigate the Pacific waters, you are doing cultural That's anthropology. Cool. Okay. Yeah, okay. You're doing ethnography, which is the practice of cultural anthropology. Because
1: you know, there's a story that I've been tracking. It's fascinates the hell out of me. It's this, I think it's a physical anthropologist uh-huh. or archeologist, you can tell me, Who's found these those caves in Mossel Bay, South Africa, uh-huh. where they've got evidence of human habitation back yeah. 200,000 years, yeah. and they've determined that that's when we started to live along the coastline and um, start to, to use human ocean resources. And they dig down,
0: yeah.
1: you know, 200,000 years yeah. in one spot. Yeah. They find now they are they're physical anthropology. Yeah, or
0: bi they biological anthropology, or ar- there's techniques in archaeology also. What kind of
1: an anthropologist to see? Who's Jared that? Jared Diamond.
0: Oh, Jared Diamond. Well, Jared worked in Papua New Guinea early in the '60s yeah. on um, you know bird calls. He spent a lot yeah. of time, and so he did cultural anthropology. Okay. He was working with existing Troburn Islanders, not Troburn, P.N.G. Islanders. Um, and so Jared would be a cultural anthropologist, and an ornithologist. Yeah, and he, a great he, ornithologist.
1: Yeah, and he's yeah. a fellow guest of the show too. I, I so, watch him, so, and so, a, uh, a
0: hero of mine for he, sure. Yeah he's, all, a, yeah, he's just
1: a wonderful, dear friend of mine. I, yeah. I love Jared. Yeah, and um, he's so he's so humble too. Because when I when I talk to him about stuff, I go, Jared, I'd like to talk to you about this or that. He says, well, Great, all I know is about Papua New Guinea birds. You know that, right? <laughs> yeah, <That's> yeah, right, <laughs> like, right. Yeah. But all you have to do is like open the door, and right. he's like got uh, a, a world view. But, all right, so cultural anthropology yeah. after a human ecology degree and they're That's kind right. of connected aren't they, they Human are. ecology yeah. and anthropology yeah never really thought about that until right now yeah. actually and where did you pick that up the phd
0: i did that at tulane university Ooh. in new orleans That's which fancy had a well it was very different than my experience as an undergraduate at coa i had a I had a, a good a great background at uh, in anthropology at tulane and tulane had a long history of doing more archeological research on the Yucatan Peninsula and in Mesoamerica and throughout Guatemala. So the uh, the institution had, uh, had deep roots in that part of the world. And so um, I did work among an existing group of Mayan speakers called the Kekchi Maya. Spent a lot of time learning language because you can't really have a window into of uh, a group's culture without that language so background. So you
1: became fluent in that? I did, that yeah. of, oh, I spent two two years, more or less, in, in northern Guatemala. I think you're right yeah. about that. You know, it's the places that I've worked, uh, as you mentioned earlier, in the Pacific, those those uh, they're foreigners, they're called Imatang, in the country that I tend to work in, uh, they had went to learn the language. Yeah. They penetrated so deep yeah. and, uh, and made made, interestingly, some of those foreigners that came in, learned the language, wrote books and all that kind of stuff, admittedly, they know the language better than the locals, I'm told, because they studied it yeah, in, all dramatically, of its, in its right. entirety, That's right, rather right. than the colloquials that they'll have on each island. That's they'd right. say, oh, yeah, that even man, he really knew uh, our language better than That's us. Right. <laughs> he can speak all these, these various, no,
0: various... But language, as you know, I mean, it's a total window into the world, and it was the most fulfilling part of my time in Guatemala, was learning. Kekchi. and being there with my wife, those two things opened up a world that would have been closed if I hadn't been. It's nice been. to
1: share things with your loved ones, isn't it?
0: Yeah, the funny story here, I'll tell you, is they uh, we were 20, I was probably 27, 28 years old at the time, We had, Karen and I just got married, moved to Guatemala, and the community was very worried about us, because they said, they thought we were married, but we didn't have Kids, you know, and they were the men would come up to me and they would say, Well, Darren, um, you know what you have to do to have children, right? <laughs> so if you didn't understand the process, <laughs> That's right. they were worried about that and they were worried about my hair because I was already, already losing my hair, and so the women would have great a great time rubbing avocado on my head and it didn't didn't work as a plant-based remedy for baldness did not work but i had i loved my time in guatemala you know, i was working
1: in an indigenous culture once and we were talking about conservation and the health of a wild population of animals yeah and it came down to describing it as, if you want them to be healthy, you stay out of their bedroom. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Just <laughs> you allow them to reproduce allow and, them and yeah. prosper. Yeah. So, I, I, know, I know from my knowledge of you, then you then you went to WW World Wildlife Fund? That's
0: right, yeah, so I graduated, and I was fortunate to start work with World Wildlife Fund, the WWF, based in Washington, T- D.C., and I focused first on, I was a the forest conservation coordinator for out th- for throughout Latin America. So, um, you know, I knew Spanish and Portuguese and and Kekchi at that time. So I um, I worked throughout the hemisphere, which was which was fun, and I had colleagues in Mesoamerica and Peru and Bolivia and Brazil and the Amazon and all the way down to the Valdivian forests in Chile. And I think it says a lot that WWF you know i wasn't a forestry expert necessarily i'd worked a lot in forests but i was an anthropologist and i think from you know one of the great things about wwf as an organization was that they understood that you know conservation was about human communities like and understanding how people use natural
1: resources and what was dear to them was absolutely crucial so i know (coughs) you know you and i both also share that work in the in the world of large NGOs, or yeah. they're, they're colloquially called bingos, yeah. big international NGOs. I was at Conservation International mm-hmm. at WWF. Mm-hmm. And I was there for the mission shift at CI when we went from a focus on biodiversity to a focus on providing human well-being yeah. through biodiversity, yep. which is what you just kind of referred to there. And uh, it, it came naturally to me, and I was new to the organization when it happened, but it caused a big chasm the ground moved in the organization and a bunch of people left yeah. people that loved uh, species and yeah. loved wildlife yeah. felt that we were going against the original doctrine uh, because we were not looking at the bottom line wasn't conservation of species the bottom line was providing benefits to humans yeah. on a sustainable basis yeah. and to me that's the paradigm that has emerged in the world where uh, that's where we need to focus it's not about it often is the same, but at the end of the day, with the poverty, with the f- nutritional problems in the world, with the social problems in the world, uh, we, can't, we, we can't take our eye off the needs of humans, the, the, the children, especially the poorer, poorer communities in the world. So conservation turned into a development uh, program, really, more than a conservation effort, in, yeah. in my experience. I yep. think you and I were probably uh, uh, experiencing that in, in different ways uh, at different organizations um, so you were at WWF and you rose to be a vice president or something pretty uh, high up. I
0: didn't I didn't have that title I am um, um, building off what you we always said and I think it's a great a great catchphrase that hungry poor people make very poor conservationists mm. right like um, if you don't simultaneously provide for for human needs, you know
1: it's just, it's not going to
0: work. It's not going to work. It's not going yeah. to work. Yeah.
1: yeah my, my old boss Peter Seligman used to say, and it was a good way to describe it. He said, we used to think that we could put biodiversity in a lockbox, and it would be preserved. Yeah. But we found out that eventually people would go into the lockbox. Yeah. So we brought people in at the be- at the start and integrated them in the system. Yeah. And only then and with that arrangement, would the arrangement be be long-term and sustainable? So, yeah. so you know, one of the premises of this show is that the ocean and humanity share the same fate. Yeah, it's kind of a simple way of putting it. Yep.